traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, Italy in crisis. How severe is the threat to the Eurozone? As soon as in one of these Eurozone countries on the edge, you start wondering about whether or not they're really committed to the project, well then everyone starts worrying and it can unfortunately become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And in defence of liberalism, we talk to the author of Radical Markets. Liberalism has an interesting way of finding its most creative new directions at precisely the moments when it seems to be most discredited. First, the political crisis in Italy with an interim government and the prospect of elections as early as September is causing severe jitters in financial markets. European stock markets weakened today and a sell-off of Italian bonds deepened. Investors are worried that the confrontation in Italy between populists and the old political order could knock the whole Eurozone. Henry Kerr, our economics editor, is on the line. Henry, Italy has been a bit of a political and economic mess for really quite a long time. How destabilising is this latest problem? Well, Italy has run up large debts. It's got public debts of about 131% of GDP, which is very large by most rich countries' standards, especially in the Eurozone, where countries like Italy, of course, do not control their own currency. So that makes it a bit different from countries like Japan, which manage with a larger debt burden than that. The other thing about Italy is that it's had very poor economic performance. Living standards there are no higher than they were around the 2000s. And the problem is that this is all now coming to a head through politics with the election of populists. People think back and compare this to the Greek crisis when Greece had to be bailed out multiple times after running up large debts. The difference here is that Italy's debts, though large, were viewed as serviceable by the markets before the recent election. They were projected to fall by the IMF over the next five years by about 10% of GDP. I think the issue is that the election of these populists who are promising very expensive fiscal policies uh, and also were not supporters of the euro, even though they said they didn't want to withdraw, people suspected that might be the case. And as soon as in one of these Eurozone countries on the edge, you start wondering about whether or not they're really committed to the project, well, then everyone starts worrying and it can unfortunately become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's, it's, it's worth worrying about these rising bond yields. When bond yields rise, that means that financing costs are going to go up. So Italy, as it turns over its debt, is going to have to start paying higher interest, presumably, on them. I mean, is that going to be a financial problem immediately for them? Well, the good thing is that the average maturity of Italy's debt is quite long. It's about seven years, which means that they've got a bit of a a buffer. Obviously, eventually, they will have to roll over the debt at the interest rates which are prevailing in the market. But they've got some time to try and convince uh, markets, if, if they do go that way politically, that they are, in fact, committed to the eurozone and to behaving themselves fiscally. The other advantage they've got is that, unlike a lot of periphery Eurozone countries, like Greece and like Portugal, for instance, in the run-up to the first Eurozone crisis, 
who were running large current account deficits. Italy's been running a current account surplus, so it's got plenty of domestic savings which the government can tap. I think the real issue is that Italy's banking sector is very fragile and Eurozone reformers have never managed properly to come to terms with this idea of the doom loop between the indebted sovereign and the troubled banking system. And so the the idea that Italy's banking system could wobble before the Eurozone has really come up with a way for breaking that doom loop is a real reason to worry. I mean, people say that Italy is too big to bail out, but also uh, too big to allow to collapse. I mean, Greece could have been cut loose. Can Italy ever actually leave the euro or does it have to be propped up somehow? Italy is extremely important to the to the eurozone and there, there are widespread doubts about whether the eurozone could survive without it. I think a lot of the problem is in transition. There is no mechanism for leaving the euro. At uh, the moment, people suspect that a country might leave the euro, that they will want to take their money out of Italian banks and transfer it to banks in Germany to avoid a kind of forced devaluation. And the real risk is that then in other countries, people start thinking, well, why shouldn't I take my money out of the bank too and send that to Germany? Now, of course, in a typical situation like this, the central bank would stand behind the country as the lender of last resort. They could do this in the case of Italy. There is no limit on the open market transactions program, which would allow the ECB to buy Italian debt to act as the lender of last resort to Italy. The problem is that to access those funds, Italy would have to agree to a fiscal reform program, much like uh, Greece did under, under duress. And of course, there's no guarantee that they'll do that with populists in office. The other thing is that there is no banking union yet. There is no common deposit insurance, for instance. So the EU doesn't stand behind all the depositors in Italy who might be thinking about withdrawing their banks. So they've only got the guarantee of the Italian government. And as I say, that's very indebted. So there is this kind of doom loop. And so you say there's no political will to do uh, what will be needed to access an ECB programme. But it's worse than that, isn't it? I mean, all we're hearing from the government that failed to actually uh, coalesce was that they wanted to make things worse, lower the pensionable age and so on. Isn't that right? Yes, of course, there's no immediate need for an ECB programme now. The only thing that would push them into a fiscal crisis, and this is what markets are anticipating, is slower growth, higher interest rates, and also if they did go on a kind of borrowing spree. So the populists were promising a kind of universal basic income being paid to everyone. They were promising a flat tax, big income tax cuts. Now, around the edges, they might have been able to loosen fiscal policy slightly, but it was such a kind of dramatic promise that the estimates I've seen are that their promise is worth 4 to 6% of GDP. You then begin to lose all credibility. And then combine that with the fact that they proposed a kind of parallel currency of sorts, saying that the government would pay you with a kind of a credit, which you could then use to pay your taxes later. And that very quickly begins looking like an alternative to the euro. So all these things make markets think that they're not serious. And that's what's creating the problem, because a few months ago, people were viewing the debt pile as sustainable. Henry Kerr, thank you, and a not very cheery chow from me. Uh, Thank you. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. 
To celebrate The Economist's 175th anniversary this year, we have launched the Open Future season, exploring the role of liberalism in the 21st century. The core tenets of liberalism, faith in free markets and open societies, face greater resistance today than they have for many years. An intriguing new book called Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society, argues for more markets just at a time when they've been held responsible for all society's ills, in particular for social inequality. Our technology editor Ludwig Ziegler spoke to one of the co-authors of the book, Glenn Weil, an economist working at Microsoft who also teaches at Yale. Ludwig began by asking him why he wrote this book now. I think liberalism has an interesting way of finding its most creative new directions at precisely the moments when it seems to be most discredited. In the 1880s, the U.S. had its first major depression that lasted almost 20 years, actually, and that's when the ideas of Henry George that inspired a lot of the ideas in this book emerged. The 1930s were a terrible time for liberalism, and yet they were the rebirth of sort of social liberalism. The 1970s were a terrible time for the Western world, and yet that's when you saw the birth of neoliberalism and Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and so forth. So I actually think uh, paradoxically it's at these moments of crisis that you see the most interesting creative new directions. So in reading your book, what's interesting, you criticize both the left and the right for, for, for different reasons. So I was wondering where would you put yourself? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting that the book has gotten almost uniform praise and blame from literally straight across the political spectrum from the very far left to the very far right one of my interns for the summer said, oh, radical markets, everyone just reacts against it because they hear markets and radical, who knows what that means? Whereas someone who interviewed me yesterday said, oh, the book is radical and who knows what markets mean? So, you know, it seems very left-wing. And I literally, from day to day, am trying to figure out, am I being more on the left, more on the right? I don't really view it as any of these. If I had to give it a name, I would call it maybe neo-radical in the same way that there's neoliberalism. The radicals in the 19th century were people who were constantly uprooting their social institutions to have more competition, to have more freedom. And it's in very much in that tradition, but adapted to our present challenges and present technologies. So how can markets help? I mean, in your book, I think one of the first chapters is about a new wealth tax uh, and a market-driven new wealth tax. Actually, you would self-assess and there's lots of kind of market mechanics going on. Give us an idea of how that works. Well, I think the basic problem that it's trying to address is the fact that on the one hand, we have all this land and spectrum and companies that are being really inefficiently run and allocated. We have cities where you've got lots of little houses in places that could have lots of efficient, affordable housing. So we've got all this waste. And at the same time, we have this incredible concentration of wealth. And people tend to view those as opposites. But I view them as very much connected to one another. I think that it's precisely the monopolization of resources by those who have a lot that is holding back our society. And I view the real problem with inequality is not inequality per se, but the fact that it's an indicator of a social disease. It's an indicator of the fact that resources are being constricted and controlled by a small number of people. And to liberate ourselves from that, we need more markets. And those more markets would bring us greater equality. And in particular, we argue that private property itself is standing in the way of the true operation of markets. It's what's stopping us from repurposing these assets. And to address that, we should have a tax. Before we talk about the tax, but is there, isn't there kind of a tension? So you want more markets, but uh, you don't like property rights? I actually view property rights as being inconsistent with truly free markets. 
And that sounds crazy. But if you think about it, the history of markets have actually been freeing us up from property rights. People associate property rights with markets. But if you think about Adam Smith, you think about Jeremy Bentham, the people who rebelled against feudalism. Feudalism was the ultimate version of property rights. It was this thing belongs in this family by primogeniture down the generations forever, complete protection. And it was the freeing up of those traditional entrenched stable property rights that allowed the birth of modern capitalism. So we associate capitalism with private property, but capitalism was really the outgrowth of freeing us from burdensome forms of property, and we need to continue with that process. And that's what people like Henry George, who I mentioned earlier, and the founders of modern economics, Leon Walras and William Stanley Jevons, that's exactly what they believed in as well. So you want to take another step away from property rights. And as far as I can understand it, is uh, the wealth tax plays an important role. Absolutely. That. So the idea is that we would have a tax on all assets, a quite high tax of about 7% that would expropriate about two-thirds of the value of private property. But the catch would be that everyone would determine the value of their own assets rather than some government bureaucrat doing that. But they would have to stand ready to sell those assets at that self-assessed price. And that would create this incredible new liquid market for land, for spectrum, for intellectual property. It would destroy the problem of patent trolls. It would destroy the problems we have with eminent domain and building new affordable housing. It would redistribute a huge amount of wealth. It would give a universal basic income to every citizen of about $24,000 for a family of four. So it would really change the whole structure of the economy. But at the same time, it would make the economy far more dynamic and competitive. It would allow new uses to be made of assets. It would make everything much more dynamic. That sounds very elegant intellectually, but it isn't a practical problem. I am always at risk of having to sell what I own, like down to, to the last pencil. Well, so it doesn't have to start with pencils. I would start with the assets that are most disproportionately controlled by the wealthy and are therefore most sort of monopolized and held away from their best uses, things like natural resource rights, spectrum, intellectual property, business assets. That's where we would start. And we would gradually move into the personal sphere. But the thing is that it doesn't really create the instability that it might seem to create. In fact, in our current society, wealth buys stability. The rich, they own their houses outright. They live in safe neighborhoods that are not prone to natural disasters. The poor rent or maybe they're underwater in their house, or even literally underwater in areas that are prone to natural disasters. And so, yes, wealth buys stability at present. In this world, you would be able to get stability by charging a higher price for your assets so that somebody else wouldn't want to take it, except rather than only the wealthy having the ability to pay for stability, everyone would have an equal ability to pay for stability. And the stability that the wealthy get that's excessive and at the cost of everyone else's opportunities, we would tax that to allow everyone else to afford a more stable and prosperous life. So there's another chapter in your book, and I was kind of surprised to find it there, on data. You kind of say data is actually labor, and there should be a market for that type of labor. Yeah. And explain. So, I mean, at present, we basically have, just as I was talking about the problems with feudalism, a feudal arrangement with regards to our data. Rather than getting paid for all the value that we create for digital services, rather than having an open market for that, we have a park that Facebook and Google allow us to play in in exchange for them getting all the value that we're creating in the digital economy, this data, and then them keeping all of that. And we want to have more of a real market system where everyone is compensated for the value that they create with their data, and maybe they have to pay for 
the value of services that they get, rather than this sort of paternalistic relationship that we currently have with the large tech companies. Again, how would that work in practice? So, so I think you've proposed the, the idea of a data labor union, or even you, you talk about data subject have to have a data consciousness. Uh, cyber woke. Yeah. Cyber work. So, so <laughs> would actually then join a data labor union, and, and how would that work? Would I go on strike? So strikes are actually really interesting and actually quite easy in this world compared to strikes in the real world because you have could have like a VPN that you connect to the internet through that then could block access to your data strategically if you had a large group of people until the Facebooks and Googles agree to reasonable working conditions, privacy and uses of the data, and reasonable compensation for that data. So there's actually a real capacity in this automated way called a strike. And because it's often on a social network, if your friends were striking, you wouldn't want to be scabbing on them. It would undermine the whole purpose. You'd have no one to interact with, and they'd see that you were taking advantage of them at the same time. But who would kind of create these data labor unions? I mean, would that be startups? I mean, there's these, these companies that organize personal data vaults and try to market your data to companies. So that exists. Is that already a data labor well, union? Well, that, that's one possible route. And I think that those are going to be turbocharged by the new GDPR regulations because those offer an opportunity for people to port their data much more easily. And they give more bargaining power to those data agents to basically go to the EU and say, look, Google and, and Facebook are not playing ball. Here's what we need to be able to port people's data. But I think that labor law actually is a very interesting potential route for this because those data agents will have some trouble if they really try to get together large numbers of people with antitrust and so forth. And labor unions have exemptions from that. And they have all sorts of special privileges that might give them more bargaining power. And there's an experiment that's really interesting. Very recently, a Dutch socialist member of the European Parliament actually registered one of these data unions under Dutch labor law rather than under the umbrella of just a private company. And so I think that's very interesting. Even beyond the rates of pay, terms and conditions of work are also a crucial thing that a labor union negotiates. And if you think about it, privacy in a data as labor world is really time off or limits on what your employer can ask you to do. So I think privacy would be part of that, it would be part of the overall data labor contract. But that's not the only thing unions do. They also guarantee quality and allow people to develop their careers and help people become better workers. And I think that that role would be played by data labor unions as well. Data labor union, radical wealth tax, there's a few other things in your book like quadratic voting. We won't go into that. There's even kind of the solution I should be able to sponsor an immigrant uh, These are kind of intellectually very interesting solutions, market mechanisms to be created. But how do you get there? I mean, politically, it seems to be something you could do when you have a kind of a greenfield. You, you start a country from a new, like, like virtual reality or something. But in the real world, how do you get there? How do you get from here to there? Well, I mean, I think things like charter cities where you do start a new society are a really interesting place to try these things out, online games and so forth. But what I've actually been shocked by is for a book that in some ways is so unrealistic. The amount of immediate interest in taking these things up has really amazed me. So within a week of the book being published, the Ethereum Foundation posted a job for people to implement Explain this. Explain briefly what Sorry. Ethereum is. Ethereum is, is the second largest cryptocurrency after Bitcoin. And they're very interested in creative new governance models. And they posted 
a job to implement these ideas on the Ethereum blockchain within a week of the book being published. A data labor union was formed within two weeks of the book being published. We are talking to governments about the idea of using this tax that I was talking about, not for everything, but for some of these early stages that I was suggesting, things like Spectrum, which maybe is the basis of the Wi-Fi that some people are using to listen to this podcast right now, but is currently monopolized by all sorts of over-the-air broadcasters who are keeping it away from those new innovative uses. Natural resource rights, a natural area for this drilling or farming rights. So I think there's all sorts of near-term possibilities. So I actually think that there's all sorts of areas, the antitrust ideas we talk about as well. So I think that these are really surprisingly very quickly making their way in smaller ways, in ways that we think that they should make them in. We don't want them to go to society broadly too quickly uh, into the public discourse and into experiments. Last question. In, in the epilogue to your book, you talk about or you discuss to what extent technology, AI, and all that makes actually a planned economy possible. Does it? I think it could. Whether that's the direction we want to go or not is a real question. But the genius of markets, I think, is that they harness the distributed computing capacity of all of the diverse people on this planet. And at the moment, no matter how much we talk about brilliant computers, humans are capable of doing so much more than computers are once you take all of humanity together. But that might not last forever. That might be a phase that we're going through, and it might eventually be that the computational capacity of computers exceeds that of humans, in which case the role of humans might become both to enjoy the output of those computers, but also to participate as citizens monitoring those systems. Glenn Weil, the co-author of Radical Markets. You can find out more at economist.com slash openfuture. And we'd love to hear from you. Would you like to see a new markets-driven wealth tax? Please get in touch via Twitter or email us at radio at economist.com and please rate us on your podcast app. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.